Scripture, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9. As we give an introduction to chapter 9, we'll look at uh, the first two verses, and then we'll look at the last two, uh, verses 1 and 2 and verses 49 and 50. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And now over to the remaining two verses, verses 49 and 50, Jesus says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Expounding the Gospel of Mark as straight talk about Jesus Christ, that's the the title that we've given to this series, picking up on uh, how Mark writes with immediacy, uh, telling us the story of the Lord Jesus. We also have sought to see in each chapter a theme, a developed theme, chapter by chapter. We know the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were not part of the original text. But what I've said to you is I do think that there is a good reason and a value for us in seeing the organization even of chapters. And so I've been looking at this and asking you to consider chapter by chapter a theme relating to the unequivocal claims of Jesus and the scripture witness to the Christian gospel of the new covenant, this identifying the coming of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I've told you also before that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. Uh, It's interchangeable. It means the same thing, so don't be confused by that. And we have here, beginning in chapter 1, the gospel beginning. Uh, Mark tells us the beginning of the gospel. This is the gospel beginning, Jesus Christ being uniquely Son of God, is the source of the gospel. Now, while Jesus is more than the gospel, let me make that plain. Jesus is more than the gospel. The meaning of the gospel originates with the person and the work of who Jesus Christ is. Remember halfway through, over in chapter 6, halfway through the the, uh, book of Mark, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So yes, I know that Jesus is more than the gospel, but the meaning of the gospel originates with the person and work of who Jesus Christ is. And so we go on in chapter 1 with the gospel claims. The gospel claims this world for the kingdom of God. That's uh, what is so pertinent. That is what is challenging to us. Even now, the day in which you and I live, the gospel claims this world For the kingdom of God. This is the way Jesus is the Savior of the world. I've asked you in this series of messages uh, through the book of Mark, do you believe Jesus is the Savior of the world? Now, it's not with the eyes of our flesh that we'll see that. We don't see it by looking around us. As a matter of fact, we're faced as we go on in the book of Mark with what seems to be a challenge of paradox. How can Jesus be the Savior of the world? Look at the trouble, look at the distress. Look at the sin. Look at the misery of the world. It doesn't look like Jesus is saving the world. Do you believe Jesus is the Savior of the world? 
That's the claim he makes. And so we find that Jesus goes into the wilderness after his baptism on the gospel campaign. He is, he is sent. He is uh, commissioned. He is ordered, if you will, by the Holy Spirit on his assault mission against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And though this is just a short passage, it is of great significance to us that in his first uh, act, after his baptism and beginning his public ministry, Jesus is ordered by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face and to confront the devil one-on-one. There's great importance in that. We talked about it before. But also, he is out in the wild world with all of its death threats. We again confess from Psalm 34 this morning, and it talked about the lions. It talked about uh, you know the wild animals of the world and, and the world in the wilderness after the fall and all of its death threats. And I pointed out to you that Jesus went out into the wilderness, not on a retreat, not on a hike, not on taking a break, but on an assault mission. Not only one-on-one with the devil, but also in the wild world with all its death threats and against the flesh. Even his own human flesh, the real human nature conditioned by the effects of original sin, but without the guilt of original or actual sin. And remember, he was hungry and thirsty. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He pushed human nature to its very limits in denying the flesh and in resisting the flesh. Uh, there's uh, speculative uh, debates that have often gone on about whether Jesus could really be tempted to sin. My answer is Jesus is really human. Jesus was really tempted to sin. Chapter 2, then we go on, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has authority on earth. What is that authority? It's the unique authority. The unique authority that's God's prerogative. What is the unique authority that's God's prerogative that Jesus Christ claims? The authority to forgive sins. I mean, that's why we're gathered here this morning. That that is really at the heart of the issue of why we come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has God's prerogative to speak forgiveness. To give us peace and to remove the guilt of our sin. Chapter 3, as the gospel source being uniquely son of God, Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. This was very important as we see in that chapter regarding his own natural family or earthly family relationships. And what we learn here and throughout scripture is concerning covenantal relationship with God. Covenantal relationship with God supersedes the natural family of bloodlines as one of the most contested clarifications of the new covenant. What is it we find uh, people, and particularly the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, upset with Jesus about about bloodlines? We're Abraham's descendants. We're of the the best blood. We're of the the, the holy blood. We're of God's chosen. (coughs) And Jesus makes it clear what was revealed before by the prophets, what's going to be exploded by the apostles, is that your bloodline after the flesh Ties you to whom? To Adam. Your bloodline after the flesh confirms you as what? A sinner. You see, that exploded. And I think it still does today. And it is one of the most contested clarifications of the new covenant. This is what the apostles wrote. But as many as receive him, to them he gave right to become children of God. What kind of children of God? 
those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but are born of God. So chapter 3 is powerful and mustn't be overlooked. We come to chapter 4, the gospel source being uniquely Son of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Master. He's King. But in in a special way, He's mediator of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and He is Creator. He's the uncreated God, united to the human nature of the man Jesus. And so, as the God-man, Jesus is equal to and entrusted with God's holy secrets about the kingdom. Who can tell us about the mysteries of the kingdom of God? The one entrusted with them. The one with whom they originate. The one who himself is God. God come in the flesh. And what does he tell us? God's holy secrets. That's something to rejoice in. And to not lose hope. Chapter 5, the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead, even between this natural world and the other supernatural world. Yes, we have to face that. The reality of the supernatural is a part of God's creation and a part of who Jesus Christ is and what He reveals. How is it that Jesus is more than a human being limited to the natural world, and Jesus Christ is more than a spirit being from the supernatural world of angels and demons. Can you answer that question? How is it that Jesus is more than a human being limited to this natural world, and he is more than a supernatural being, a spirit being, from the supernatural world of angels and demons? I'll give you a hint. Read Hebrews chapter 1. <laughs> but you should pick up on it as well from what we have here in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 6, the gospel conflict in this sinful world is against unbelief. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? The gospel conflict in this sinful world is against unbelief, disbelief, false belief, and weak belief. But saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus is the God-man who is uniquely the perfect revealer of God the Father and do you trust Him as God for things seen and unseen? We live in the world of the unseen. There is another world of the supernatural of God's creation. The devil is real. Angels and demons are real. We find that confrontation throughout the Gospel of Mark. We'll even have more to say about it. But the real question that this drives to us is, do you believe that Jesus is the God-man? Uniquely, the perfect revealer of God the Father. And do you trust Jesus? This morning, are you trusting Jesus as God for things both seen and unseen? Chapter 7 The gospel purifies from the corruption of external man-made religious traditions of self-righteous rules and rituals, clarifying the internal transformation of the soul by saving faith. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus is contending with this, as you know, against the religious establishment and the false teaching and and of uh, that that claim to bloodline uh, uh, 
advantage and, and uh, claim of uh, being the chosen of God by a bloodline or by works righteousness. That's where the conflict is between self-righteousness of law works, i.e. the uh, uh, Pharisees, or God's righteousness by grace faith. Uh, We find that more fully developed in the writings of the apostles and the preaching of the apostles, but here Jesus is dealing with that and he purifies the gospel. By the gospel, he purifies the corruption of external man-made religious traditions and self-righteous rules and regulations. And he clarifies there must be a transformation from the inside out. It must be with a change of heart. This is the heart of the gospel, as only the gospel can penetrate the sin-hardened heart. That's why we are set for the defense of the gospel. Because it's only the gospel ordained by God, embodied in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's only the gospel that can penetrate the sin-hardened heart. This scripture teaching that sin is sourced in the human heart and not in outward things, no matter how elaborately construed, is essential to the right synthesis and the notable meaning of the gospel. Remember what Jesus said to the the disciples and the apostles? Don't you put it together? Don't you synthesize it, my teaching? Can't you put it together? Have you taken note of what I'm teaching and telling you? Chapter 8. The gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world demands faith in divine providence integral to the salvation of the world, progressive revelation recorded in Holy Scripture, predictive prophecy terminating in Christ's new covenant gospel, and promised gospel consummation to the glory of God. So we spent time expounding through chapter uh, 8, and I want you to understand So the gospel paradox is also a personal paradox of saving faith. See, we're not just trying to tease our intellect here by saying what seems to be a contradiction. Beloved, the gospel appears to be a contradiction to the world of unbelievers. You understand that. I know you do. They don't get it. But the question is, do you get it? So the gospel paradox is also a personal paradox of saving faith. What seems to be a contradiction, but is settled in your heart and mind by faith. What seems to be a contradiction of defeat to the unbelieving world is the greatest victory of eternal life over eternal death. Is that settled in your heart and mind? There may be many things I don't know and understand, but of this I am sure. Whatever the unbelieving world sees as contradictory and confusing, this I know. I was dead, but now I'm alive again and forevermore. That's what the gospel brings by way of peace and certainty. You see, what the gospel gives us is the long view. And what's going to be revealed more in in the gospel of Mark of this long view is that the long view of eternal life over eternal death by saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the long view is previewed and confirmed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why Peter was disturbed when Jesus told him what's going to happen. And and as we go on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to be telling it more. It's going to become more and more a part of what he has to say. But by faith, we have resolved that seeming paradox because we now have confirmed and previewed for us the long view of eternal life over eternal death 
because we confess and believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And chapter 9 is going to bring something more about that resurrection of Jesus. And that brings us then to chapter 9 this morning. Here is the the summary of chapter 9. The New Covenant Christian Gospel is the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God to be made imminent in the earth. The supernatural power and presence of the triune God personally knowable. Now you may have heard in theological discussion uh, comments or teachings about the transcendence and the imminence of, of God. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that when we come to it. But you see what's displayed to us in the transfiguration is that the power of the kingdom of God is made imminent and present in the earth. The supernatural power and presence of the triune God is personally knowable in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 9, uh, we'll give the overview this morning as we look at, uh, at uh, come back to look at exposition of this chapter. But in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, dramatically displays the transcendent and imminent divine being who empowers the kingdom of God on earth. We talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the transcendent power and presence of God himself, the creator, who has made himself known and present with us, and that is displayed dramatically and and previewed in the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ. And then in verses 9 through 13, going on in chapter 9, the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, gives a covenantal pledge, previewing theological resurrection. Now, I want you to think about this, and I hope you'll be interested in it when we come to this passage. Theological resurrection is about more than someone returning from the dead. Jesus raised many from the dead. We have that record. We have it here in the Gospel of Mark we've talked about. But have you ever considered this, that theological resurrection is about more than someone returning from the dead? Well, the Lord Jesus has something to say about that following the transfiguration as he gives that covenantal pledge. And we'll talk about what that covenantal pledge is uh, from the the transfiguration. In verses 19, uh, I'm sorry, 14 through 29, the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ of God Revealing the transcendent and the imminent divine power in the kingdom of God informs all confrontations with the world, the flesh, and the devil, past, present, and future. That's important for us to to get a a view on as well because we've already had, coming up to chapter 9, we've already seen confrontations with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But now we're going to see that the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ of God in terms of the, of the um, transcendent and the imminent divine, divine power in the kingdom of God, informs that conflict with the world and the flesh and the devil, not just past, not just present, but also future. Going on in chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, by the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, the Christian gospel inverts and overpowers the world's power structures and struggles, but in terms of the kingdom of God. Not in our terms, 
Not necessarily how we think it ought to be. How does the power of the gospel and the presence of the kingdom of God by the transcendent and imminent power of God, how does it overturn and invert the world's power struggles and and structures? We don't see it with our eyes. But we can attest to it by faith. Can you say that God has overturned the power of the world in your life? That the transcendent and the imminent power of God to be in His kingdom, to be brought out of darkness and brought into His kingdom, that your whole life has been turned aright. It was said of the apostles in preaching the gospel that they had turned the world upside down. What we say is that it's right side up. God is setting it all right. The Lord Jesus Christ as king and head of his church and through the power of the gospel and the transcendent imminent power of God through faith and by the transforming power of the gospel is setting things right. And the world is being turned upside down. That's why the world is at at war with God. But we must see the inversion and uh, overturning of these power struggles and structures in terms of what God's kingdom is. Not in worldly terms. And then in verses 38 through 50, uh, concluding chapter 9, the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, empowers Christian believers in the kingdom of God by supernatural transformation in Christ's likeness. Here we come to the end of the chapter, the two verses that I read. As living sacrifices and having gospel peace. Can you even put those two together? The world doesn't get it. A living sacrifice, that's a contradiction. How can you be living and a sacrifice? And how, through being a sacrifice, can you have peace? You see, the world doesn't get it. Sacrifice doesn't bring peace. Sacrifice brings oppression. Sacrifice brings hurt. Sacrifice brings violence. Sacrifice brings resentment. Sacrifice brings a growing uh, rejection and a mounting resistance. In all the terms of the world, sacrifice doesn't bring peace. Sacrifice is seen as oppression. What does the gospel tell us? That we're being transformed in a supernatural way with the transcendent and imminent power and presence of God himself in the person of his son Jesus Christ and his kingdom that is unlike the kingdoms of the world in such a way that being Change from the inside out into Christ's likeness. Again, further elaborated in the, the writings of the apostles and our Christian faith. Being transformed and changed from the inside out in Christ's likenesses, in Christ's likeness, we understand what it is to be a living sacrifice and how that's not contradictory to having gospel peace. That's why in the power of the gospel, we live displaying the transcendent and the imminent power of Christ and his kingdom. This is what Peter wrote about this incident. It carried with him. You see, we're we're carrying the transfiguration theme through chapter 9, but it carried with Peter all his life. And this is what Peter wrote in his second epistle. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he talking about specifically? He tells us it was the Mount of Transfiguration. For he received, that is Jesus received from God the Father, honor and glory 
when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is described to us by Mark, who most likely got it firsthand from Peter as we get into chapter 9. And what does Peter say? What carried with him? What, what, what affected him for the rest of his life? He heard the voice of God and he saw the transfiguration of Christ when the aurora of his deity burst through his humanity and he glowed in their presence with ways beyond description as the Christ of God. And Peter heard the voice of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So as we turn to chapter 9 of the gospel of Mark, the new covenant Christian gospel is the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God to be made imminent in the earth. Do you believe the supernatural power and presence of the triune God is personally knowable? And how do you respond to the voice of God? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Do you hear the voice of Christ? And even being called to living sacrifice, does that speak gospel peace? Are you at gospel peace in your soul this morning? We come to this Lord's Supper. Jesus tells us we should have peace. Peace I give to you, not the peace of the world. My peace I leave with you. And so Jesus gives us this Lord's Supper to confirm in us by faith His transcendent power is imminent. 